DevCom Podcast presents the Fireside Cast with your host, Lars Janssen. Welcome to this episode of our DevCom Podcast series, bringing you the DevCom experience year round. I'm super excited today to welcome the wonderful Kate Edwards, Executive Director of the Global Game Jam, CEO at Geography, and also Advisory Board member here at DevCom. Welcome, Kate. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Did, did I forget any of the, the things you do? Uh, there's other stuff too. We'll probably <laughs> get into it, that. It seems like I already listed a couple of them, but you, <laughs> you're doing so many things. And uh, you know, why don't you tell us a bit about uh, yourself? Uh, obviously, you've been in this industry like uh, for quite a while, and uh, most people know you, but uh, there might be some aspects to what you're doing currently or what you've done in the past that people mm -hmm. are not too aware of. So it would be great if you could give us a quick rundown of uh, your path so far. Sure. Um, well, so I'm a, a geographer and a cartographer that's been working in the game industry for over 27 years now, as of April of 2020. And, um, you know, I've been doing a lot of things in this industry, but the main thing that um, I've been doing is my culturalization work. So I, that's essentially how I got into the industry was um, I was at Microsoft because I was there for 13 years, uh, went in there as a cartographer to work on the old Encarta Encyclopedia, which for those who don't know, was the, the last major encyclopedia before Wikipedia showed up online. I loved it uh, at the time. You know, obviously then came Wikipedia, but, uh, but still yeah. it was uh, good stuff. Yeah, and there's a lot of people who remember Encarta very fondly, so uh, which is always cool to hear. So I worked on that, and then as I was at Microsoft, I saw that my skill set, you know, as a geographer, could be useful in other areas of the company, which included the video games, which were just barely getting started when I was there back in the early '90s. And so that's how I eventually ended up working on pretty much all the Microsoft games while I was there, like all you know, the Halos and Fable and Age of Empires and, you know, all kinds of other titles, you know, it goes on and on and on. And I was doing this this culturalization work, um, you know, which I kind of made up on the spot because I saw they needed someone to help them um, basically work with them on all the the non-linguistic aspects, because obviously you have localization people who are handling the translations and everything, but they didn't have anyone like examining like the character design or the environment design or the use of symbols and gestures and all these other non-linguistic factors that can get you into a ton of trouble. Um, even if it's like using real world history and like a certain government doesn't agree with your view of history, you know, all kinds of stuff. Um, and when I was doing this work, I basically found my true love. I'm like, this is awesome because <laughs> I've <laughs> always been a geek. I've been a gamer ever since Pong showed up because that's how old I am. Uh, I played Pong, I think, when I was seven years old. And um, in, at one point in my past, I wanted to be a conceptual artist for Lucasfilm because I wanted to be uh, work on a Star Wars film really, really bad. I'm a huge Star Wars geek. Um, and eventually, you know, 20 years later, I did do in my culturalization work capacity, I got to work on Star Wars The Old Republic for four years. So that was kind of cool. The circle was complete. So it must have been um, your fangirl moment at that point, right? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> but in addition to all that, the consulting work, the culturalization work, I've been pretty active in advocacy work in the last 10 years or so in the industry. So I ran the International Game Developers Association for five years and was very outspoken on a lot of issues affecting the industry like crunch time and diversity and inclusion and you know work-life balance and all these things and um, 
And of course, that was during the time of Gamergate. So that was interesting being attacked by them for over two years um, because I was, you know, basically speaking out against their misogyny. And um, and then, you know, after that, I, I basically went back to my consulting work, which I've been doing all along anyway. Um, but then also I, I was approached to help run the to run take over the Global Game Jam organization, which has been super fun because it's a, it's such a cool event. You know, this the yeah. lar world's largest game creation event that happens every year. And uh, yeah, so there's a lot of stuff I'm doing. There's the consulting, there's the advocacy work. Um, there's a lot of stuff on the side I'm involved with, too. So uh, I like keeping busy. <laughs> yeah, I can definitely see that. And you get a quite unusual path into the industry. I, I think you're the only uh, geographer I know uh, in the industry. <laughs> I mean, but there's probably others, so I don't want to be unfair. But there uh, are, you know, so. there are. There's, they're not as obvious as I am. But um, I think a lot of people know Joe Twist, who runs oh, yeah. Yuki in the UK. Joe is a geographer. Well, as she well. is. I didn't know that. Okay. Yes, she is. So yeah, she and I have a, a good affinity. <laughs> yeah, I hope I will have her on a podcast episode in uh, in the near future as well. So uh, then I'm going to talk to her about it. Definitely Absolutely. Gonna be interesting to see the parallels there. So, oh, yeah. I mean, since, since you're doing so many different things in the industry, um, why don't we start with something light, you know, easy topic, <laughs> state of the industry. <laughs> where, yeah. where are we at right now? And uh, what are your thoughts on like the, the major challenges we're facing as an industry right now? And uh, it can maybe tie it in a little bit to the work you're doing. Um, so what are your thoughts? I, I think there's a, there's a lot of angles here. I mean, one of the things I think that is most challenging right now, I mean, I we could talk about the pandemic, of course, for hours, but, you know, how the industry has responded, I think we are among the very fortunate people um, who can work from home or work remotely. And, um, you know, we have to remember to keep our humility about that because uh, the majority of people who have jobs around the world who were affected by the pandemic, they can't work from home and they've lost yeah. a tremendous amount. And, um, you know, and it was it annoyed me early on where I saw some of my game industry colleagues were kind of gloating, you know, wow, look at all the time I'm going to have to play games and do this and I can still do my job. And it's like, yeah, that doesn't sound really good. <laughs> because the the optics of that are pretty negative, you know, from someone who's outside the industry. But I think, you know, I I think that kind of passed when everyone realizes like this isn't a temporary thing. This is a long-term haul. Um and I think what it what is what it has forced us to do to a certain degree is sort of optimize how we work. And I am hoping that um on, like on the work-life balance front, um I don't know if it's a benefit necessarily because now we're expecting people to have an office in their home and to sustain an office space and to you know basically take care of their kids or their other responsibilities at home while they're also trying to do their work and it's been really challenging and um, i know for a lot of people it's taken a huge toll on their mental health um, which really concerns me i mean i'm on the board of takethis.org which deals with mental health in the industry i'm also a patron of safe in our world which is the uk-based um, organization focused on mental health yeah by the way we're going to have an episode with them i think uh in the upcoming weeks as well um excellent uh, we're working with safe in our world as well so i'm, I'm happy to hear that you're also uh, involved with them um, because i really do they they do some i really think they do some outstanding work uh, and uh, i think many games companies could benefit from um you know partnering up with them to raise uh, awareness for mental health issues in the industry so i'm looking yeah, forward to that episode absolutely that, um, yeah i will i am as well because yeah they're doing amazing work and, and it's really important and i think the the pandemic has shown us that mental health is a real factor you cannot avoid it because even for people who are who come across as being pretty resilient 
I, I know all of us are starting to feel the weight of this. It's not fun being locked down. It's not, there's nothing joyous about getting to stay home all the time, <laughs> you know? So, um, you know, but that, that issue aside, um, you know, I think the other things that we're facing as, as an industry, as many industries are facing as well as on the issue of inclusion, which I know we'll get to in depth later, that's another issue that we're facing, especially in light of the the latest wave of Black Lives Matter movement and the visibility on that, um, you know, which I think has a certain conjunction with the, the stress that was happening during the pandemic that kind of brought that to a certain higher level of visibility yeah. than normally it would have gotten. Um, and so in one way, I'm kind of thankful for the pandemic for making that possible, even though I'm not thankful for having a virus. But I think you know what I mean. Yeah, definitely. Um, so, you know, in the industry itself, not besides all the, you know, basic statements that company release saying we support, we support, which is great. But it's, but I'm hoping and I have seen in some cases where it's not just about posting a trite statement to say, hey, look at us where we agree. It's what are you actually going to do about it? You know, what are the actions you're going to take that's going to be substantial in improving underrepresented people in your company? And and, um, and I'm hoping this is one of the factors that is going to help that. So it's it's interesting that we're in this so very punctuated moment in time over the last few months where potentially because of the pandemic, not only is it upending, you know, how we work, which I think is going to have a long-term effect on our industry, um, but it's also affecting you know how companies think about what representation means, um, and all of this has happened just in like the last three months, which is just when you kind of step back and think about it, you're like, wow, this is this is kind of crazy. But at the same time, it's like that it adds to that sense of stress because so much is changing so quickly. Um, but then at the same time, you know, because of the medium that we represent, we're seeing incredible sales numbers of our games. We're seeing kind of a huge boon for the industry because people are stuck at home and they, they need something to do. And I think at the same time, in addition to the, the, the confrontation about work life, the confrontation about underrepresented people, we're also facing the issue of, um, of basically what games mean to society, you know, and, and just the fact that the WHO, which which basically panned games last year as a possible addiction, yeah. you know, they come out, you know, about a month or so into the the pandemic and the lockdowns, saying games are a great way to distract yourself and spend your time. I was <laughs> definitely like, surprised when I heard that, and it was a big one for the industry. It was, it was, and yeah. I know a lot of people were quick to cry. Oh, look at those hypocrites! Look at the hypocrites! Yeah. It's like, well, they they didn't. They didn't say you can't become addicted by playing those games, but it was just they it did they did somewhat it came across as softening their position that games are not necessarily the evil um, yeah. that they originally portrayed them to be last year. Um, and I think that as well, and I, and I think in, there's been other stories and other things out there in the media where showing that games um, actually are valuable and it's not a geek thing and it's not like a fringe thing. This is something that is mainstream. And again, the pandemic has kind of forced a lot of people to understand that and the, understand the role that games play in the broader you know, form of entertainment that we do as human beings, especially with all the, the movie theaters being closed. Yeah, abso you know, absolutely. I mean, multiplayer games are what people can enjoy during these times. And and I I think it's okay for WHO, for example, to, to change their opinion 
opinion a little bit or change their their, their general stance toward games because sometimes you learn and you understand what happens and uh, you know there's it's just the way some of those organizations work I'm, I'm happy that there's movement in uh, in, in that light uh, at the moment mm -hmm. um, but also at the same time it's challenging obviously for the games industry um, how to position um, us or ourselves you know uh, when we talk to other parts of, of society um, you brought it up before obviously the games industry is, is doing relatively well right now you know a lot of people mm -hmm. are seeing good revenues um, are seeing high player numbers in, in their games um, at the same time I think it's it would be unwise to uh, you know to really brag about this and uh, but, but rather like you said in the beginning be, be a little more uh, humble about it and understand that uh, we're relatively lucky uh, you know, to be in that position but also that means other industries can learn a little bit uh, from us in terms of how resilient we are um, to a crisis like this um, there are other industries can definitely benefit from our knowledge in terms of um, digitalization of things and, um, and that's what we see uh, I think all over Europe and I think the same in the States right now that uh, people from other industries are curious about you know mm -hmm. how we do this and why are we the ones that are doing relatively well compared to others yeah. Yeah, I think I think that's a great point. I mean, this is I, I think if we were to summarize it, what it really comes down to to me is that this is an opportunity for the game industry to show leadership um, and whether or not we're willing to consciously take on the mantle of leadership. I think it is already implicit exactly for the reasons that you stated that, um, you know, just because we've already been doing this and because we are a technology dependent medium, that means we're already on the cutting edge because we have to be, you know, we're, we're so dependent on technology. I mean, all it takes is a new technology to come out and it completely changes what we're capable of doing. You think about with the when uh, when touchscreens on phones and tablets came out, it opened up an entirely new interaction for us um, for how we design our games which is which is super exciting and no doubt there's going to be something that comes along that does the same so we we kind of already live in that space where you know because technology changes so quickly we're used to the dynamism of change where i think a lot of other industries are not you know and so we're we are kind of fortunate to be in that position yeah, it's a huge opportunity, and I see it when I talk to policymakers here in Germany or in other countries. They're also curious about this. They're curious about, you know, what is it, uh, what does it take to to get there uh, on a broader scale? You know, how, what can they learn from the games industry? Uh, so it's. Uh, it's it feels a little bit like a reward for all the the years of hard work of uh, mm -hmm. you know convincing people that games are not evil that games are a very important part of our culture and can really help uh, support a society in, in moments like this uh, now to see that uh, you know is worth it is, is is pretty good and and I also think it helps that there are sometimes and you've probably had this experience yourself but there if you're longer in the industry then uh, you sometimes feel like well am, am i doing something for for the good of uh, of the world you know am i helping society am i are games mm -hmm. really that you know uh, do they matter that much? Are they that valuable to, to other people? Mm -hmm. I, I think a lot of people I talked to had these these moments of doubt, you know, is it just entertainment or oh, are yeah. we doing something meaningful? And uh, I mean, right now, it's more clear than ever that we are doing something meaningful, right? Absolutely. And especially, I mean, I think, well, that that's something I've been pushing for quite a while now when I've, you know, especially in my more of the advocacy roles that I've been doing where I speak up for the industry, when I meet with government ministers from around the world. 
And the message I try and help them understand is that, you know, and, and sometimes I'll use like a chart that shows like I, I list on this chart, like all kinds of media that human beings have been using over the, you know, since our existence, you know, so visual arts and language and, you know, just kind of going down the list in literature, uh, movies, radio, film, television, all these other things. And I have video games at, at the end of that list. And the reason I, I kind of order it in the, in in the order that these mediums were, you know, discovered. And my point is, is that we represent the current evolution of human narrative. I mean, that's what games are. We are redefining and, and rethinking how stories are conveyed from one generation to another, just going all the way back to our ancestors, where it used to be just oral histories alone, and then eventually cave paintings and eventually writing and all these other forms of media. And, um, and we are now defining what narrative means and how we convey those stories and experiences and because the technology upon which we're based you know we and because of our interactivity i i truly believe that we are the closest thing to an empathy engine that has been created by people so far you know because you can really develop a sense of empathy um, with the characters. I'm not saying that other media can't. I mean, mm -hmm. certainly there are great writers and books and films and other media that do that as well. But I'm saying we're poised. I think we're in the best position to define that even further. Um, and we're just getting started, obviously. <laughs> you know, we've so only I, been around a few decades. So I find that a very interesting point that we are kind of uh, very good at that that empathy part. What would you say is is it that we do differently or the, what are the opportunities that we have that other uh, mediums don't have um, to, um, you know, let people feel empathy in video games that we make? Well, I, I really do think it comes down to the issue of agency. And I know many people have, have talked about this and the interactive part of, of what games represent. But I think agency is really the key because you can watch a film in which you see characters act out a certain scene or something. And we, we cry, we respond to that because we're feeling ourselves in that situation or it relates to a life experience we've had, you know, like losing a loved one or losing a dog or a pet or, you know, having a fantastic achievement or something. And we're we're happy for these characters that we've come to bond with over the last two hours. Um, and in a game, though, I think it it takes that a step further because we are doing the action. We have the agency right. to actually do these things. And I, the sense of accomplishment, um, I think, is greater. It, it's a greater depth of emotional response because we've been allowed to have a broader range of emotional interaction with the character because we are actually controlling that character. We're not just passively watching. And I think that's a huge part part of it yeah do you have a magic moment in mind where you felt a strong empathy in a video game you know i mean it there's been many actually but for some people it may sound silly but one of them that that really touched me well there's two actually one was when um because i worked on the original halo games and i'm a huge halo geek i i mm -hmm. love those games and i still play you know multiplayer a lot um it was when uh, master chief lost cortana you know i think it was what halo 4 when, or when that was i forget but one of the one of the ones um and yeah that does that kind of touched me because i i've always kind of enjoyed that relationship um the other one that really hit me hard was in fable 2 when i lost my dog when mm -hmm. I had that that dog that followed me around and, and part of the reason is because that I was playing that game around the time I lost my dog. Uh, my dog died in my arms, 16 year old dog. 
And so the emotional connection to losing the pet was really strong. And so when I lost the dog in the game, I was crying, you know, but then I was so happy because later in the game, you can resurrect, you get that choice of like resurrecting your family or resurrecting your dog. And, and of course I chose the dog. I <laughs> she just want to say you, you know? pick the dog over the family. I, I don't All care right. about my virtual family. I All want right. my dog back. Damn it. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, for me, it was, I guess, more traditional. My my, uh, you know, all-time favorite moment was uh, the death of Ares in Final Fantasy VII. Uh, oh, I, yeah. I, I hope you played the game, but that moment after, you know, the strong bond that you established with the character after, like you said, the agency you had, you, you feel like mm -hmm. she's part of your team, and, and then all of a sudden, you know, she, she dies. And, you know, everybody who's never heard of this and never played the game before and exper would experience that moment right now, I think they would still yeah. feel strongly about it, despite the fact that the graphics are outdated and that it's not like the same thing mm -hmm. anymore but uh, this was a this was my magic moment for for many years yeah that's a great one so, so let's talk a bit about uh, culturalization i mean you do a lot of mm -hmm. uh, work in the field um uh, and uh, I'm, i'm curious uh what that work looks like what do you, how you think about culturalization how to bring games to different markets to different regions mm -hmm. and what it actually uh, takes to be successful there and what it takes to understand uh, why this matters so much. Well, yeah, there, there are so many different factors around this topic. And, and I guess if I were to summarize what culturalization really is, um, for me, it's basically my goal is to try and maximize the reach of the games. No, so I want the games to be as enjoyed and the creative vision of these amazing creators. I want it to be enjoyed by as many people around the world as possible. And so obviously, as we talked about before, localization is part of that. There's the people who have to translate the, the actual text, but not all games have text or they have very little. Yeah. So there's other factors that might be involved that help adapt the games, um, the concepts, the characters, whatever it might be to other cultures. And, you know, the I kind of divide it up into two categories. One is what I call reactive culturalization. So that's, that's what a lot of companies hire me for. That's looking for stuff that's going to cause a reaction you know, usually yeah. a negative reaction. So it's the kind of stuff like using a specific symbol or using a historical scenario in a game like Age of Empires that might be sensitive in the, in the, the country in question or countries in question. Um, the representation of characters, the cultural representation, gender representation, nationalities, things like that. Um, also, if there's faith systems in games, you know, there's games that deal with real world faiths of, you know, that we're all familiar with. There's ones that make up face, um, like in fantasy games, and those faiths might mimic certain faiths that are, that are out there in the world. Like I worked on all the Dragon Age games, and there's the one face system in there that feels very Catholic. And uh, mm. it it is, I mean, it's, it's in it, a lot of, but a lot of narratives do that. I mean, like in Game of Thrones, they kind of have their, I forget the name of their, that face system, but it, it kind of feels like Catholicism to a certain degree, um, at least in its structure and its orthodoxy. And, you know, so I look at things like that and I try and examine basically, you know, what might cause a, a negative reaction. The other part of it is proactive culturalization where I'm looking for ways to actually enhance the experience um, for game players. You know, maybe there's something that, maybe the company has a particular push they want to do, say in Southeast Asia or mm -hmm. South Asia or the Middle East. You know, what can we do to actually make the content more appealing to those specific players? Um, are there certain cultural things that we can put into the game? Are there certain symbols or just kind of style that we can emulate that would make the game more appealing 
And, um, you know, there's a lot of that happens, for example, in a lot of mobile games where they do live ops, where they will adapt the content for specific holidays in different countries around the world. And, um, and so a lot of times they'll just borrow a few objects from the from that culture and um and basically put them into the game environment to, to sort of say like hey this this version of this game which is going to be running for the next two weeks is in honor of your holiday and um you know so that's another form of proactive culturalization um yeah so, would, so would, there's would you, would you say that developers um now are more aware of the importance of culturalization than they used to be uh, a couple of years ago I, I think they're getting more aware, yeah, and, and I think part of what's making them more aware is the community pushback, let's mm. face it. I mean, it's like this is these kind of issues have been issues for many, many years. It's why I've been doing this work for, you know, oh, for so long. But um, and oftentimes people will say, well, that's just a problem that Microsoft needs to worry about or Sony or Nintendo, the big companies, because they're giant targets. And there's a certain truth to that. I mean, certainly people are more apt to go after the big company targets um, because, you know, they've got more money, they've got more presence, they have more influence um, compared to like a smaller developer or an indie developer. Um, but that being said, you know, it, it all depends on who might happen to pick up on it in the community and whether or not they're willing to make an issue out of it. And as we know, I think all of us are extremely aware how online community now is a force and is a for force of yeah, nature that yeah. you have to reckon with. And so if you do something that people really like, you're going to have this massive outpouring of love and appreciation. And if you do something that you messed up somehow, you used something incorrectly, you, you know, didn't consult with a certain culture before creating that character or using their history or something, then you're going to hear about it. And you will always be hearing about it for a long time. <laughs> yeah, and, and so that's, that's even only one part, like you said before. That's the that's the part of uh, something uh, triggering, you know, um, uh, or people being being offended by something doing in the game. But there's also the opportunity that I think is the interesting part. Um, so even if you're doing everything right with the game and nobody um, uh, thinks that it's inappropriate for a certain region, then you might you still might not make use of the possibilities that you would have uh, with with the proactive culturalization, as you called it. Um, mm -hmm. in, in the past, I've been working uh, a lot with um, uh, on games that we published in the uh, Middle East, and, and especially in that area, it is very important to work with um, locals there to understand what, what kind of uh, elements in the game they would love to see that would make it feel more mm -hmm. like their own game, they, the game they already enjoyed, but would even enjoy more if they had something that they could say, this is a really clear reference to our culture, to our way of life in here in, in, in the region. Um, and that oftentimes really benefited uh, everybody. Like you, you, we created more revenue by having something like this in the game. And at the same time, you know, people felt more happy and, uh, and community engagement and retention mm -hmm. of players was, was just much stronger. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think one of the things, I mean, I, I know that Oftentimes when I talk about culturalization and like representation of real world cultures and so on, um, people get really nervous. They're just like, well, I'm just going to avoid all of that. I'm not going to put any of that in my game. I'm like, well, I don't encourage that. I mean, I encourage if you have an idea for a game, if you have this creative vision for what you want to do and, a, you know, you have an a, a idea for a narrative you would like to tell, I don't discourage people from avoiding these things, what I encourage them to do is to do your due diligence and research, mm. you know, and make sure that you really understand what you're representing. And more importantly, 
and I'm so happy that more and more companies seem to be understanding this today, is that if you're going to have, for example, a character from a certain culture and you want to represent them correctly, then talk to the people from that culture, engage them and get their input and, and you know, you know, leverage their expertise on their own culture. And don't just assume by reading Wikipedia articles or whatever that you understand their culture. So I think it's really important to engage and to get that input um you know there's a certain level of of culture you can represent if you're doing a real world culture um but you know like if you just kind of want to hint for example that this person is from that culture or this culture you may not need to engage um but if you're going to go deeper than that i think you should and and honestly i think you should really the more you can the better off it is because i think there needs to be that dialogue that happens with the people representing that culture um, and and I, it's not just about culture, it's about any form of representation, ethnic, gender, whatever it might be, um, you know, and it doesn't have to be this massive, long, you know, thesis kind of conversation with, you know, it, it sometimes can be just a brief conversation with somebody and say, hey, what do you think of this concept art that we're making for this character? Mm. You know, do you, is there anything about this that you think is problematic or you think we should change or... And um, a lot of it comes down to the intent, though, because that that's one of the core things I deal with with the culturalization work is that obviously the 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 people who receive the content, the, the end users, the gamers and so on, they read intent into everything they see. And so if they see something that they think is problematic, they're going to be questioning, why did the developer do it this way? You know, and oftentimes, like I would say, 99 percent of the time, they believe that there was a conscious intent behind the design um and so they so if they find something offensive they're going to assume that the developer did that on purpose you know where, whereas on the other side of it because i work with so many developers i also know that like 99 percent of the time it's just ignorance they didn't do yeah. their homework they didn't do their research it's not that they're trying to be offensive they're not trying to do something controversial they just didn't do their work that they should have done and so that's why I often really strongly encourage developers when you create stuff, create with intent. Don't just make stuff mindlessly and fill the environment, you know, what I call backfilling of the environment. It's just you have to think about everything that you make. You have to be very intentional with your creation. Now, a lot of those games, uh, or not of those, but in general, a lot of games are still made in the West. Um, uh, so if you are culturalizing for uh, territories that, um, you know, people living in the U.S. or in Europe somewhere are maybe not too familiar with, would you, would you say it makes sense to partner up with local teams, uh, local development teams, and, you know, make them part of uh, the entire endeavor, make them, uh, you know, part of a co-development project? Is that something you see more um, these days? Yeah, I think we're we are seeing a little bit more of that, but I that's something I encourage even more for for several reasons, not just for the culturalization reasons. I think there's a huge benefit in partnering, like especially in emerging markets. You know, there are basically small studios in these all over the world, pretty much everywhere you go. And I think there's a lot of, you know, there's uh, economic benefit, especially to that small developer in an emerging market. If you can, you know, partner with them, help bring them into the project as not only as consultants for the, for the particular challenges of that region or of their specific country or culture, but also because they have the skills. 
you know, and, and you're by doing so, you're actually helping them. You're you're empowering them and giving them experience, which they can take and cultivate that, and and possibly move on to more work. Um, you know, a lot of the, the a lot of the challenges is that people just they they know that there's a lot of development going on out there, but they don't give these people a chance who in i mean i've i've had the you know when there's no pandemic i've had the fortunate ability to travel um all over the place and you know so many places i've been you know like in iran for example when i was there a couple years ago in tehran and tremendous talent in tehran and, and in iran in general i mean amazing game development talent and yet they're suffering under the lid of this huge you know the socio-political economic sanctions mm. and everything else that's going on and people could argue the politics around it all they want but the reality is that there's actual developers just like us who are there who are just desperately desiring to make games and to release their games and yet they can't because you know or they have a, a lot of challenges to doing so because of the the, the geopolitical situation um you yeah, know Ra but if iran is interesting so, uh, since you mentioned it i mean uh, my, my previous company we've been uh, traditionally doing a lot of business with iran because uh it's a very young um audience there um mm. i think it's still one of the youngest uh, um, demographics in the world uh, as far mm -hmm. as i'm aware um so uh, a lot of uh, potential uh gamers uh, there and uh, it, these guys were super dedicated uh, we had a lot of them at, at some point we had like more than almost a million uh, monthly users in in our games but then mm -hmm. uh, because of the situation the political situation that we're talking about you know it got uh, more and more difficult to operate a game in in the country at some point you had to pull out because otherwise uh, you would get into trouble with uh, the US based partners and, and partners yep. in the country so and that's a shame because there are so many talent uh, uh, talented people there there's uh, so many good uh, indie development studios that uh, you could partner up with that do amazing concept art especially with a focus on the region there so I would hope that at some point you know with a with the power of the games industry we can actually help uh you mm -hmm. know push those uh those initiatives and then make sure that this doesn't happen anymore that uh, people can actually develop games regardless of where they are yeah exactly and, and i mean we're already moving towards that i mean obviously that's another side effect of the pandemic is that if companies are going to commit from a long-term working from home model yeah. then that means the location of the talent becomes irrelevant yeah it makes it you much know? easier and i can see I mean, with a lot of studios i just recently talked to to a couple of guys that like uh, more traditional AAA development studios and even they are saying well we are transforming uh, transforming the studio into a work from home uh facility mm -hmm. pretty much so uh if people want to come to the office fine but we are designing this so that we get the best talent in the world and they can work for us and we need to figure out new tools and processes to make this work but uh, at the same time we believe uh, that the benefits uh, by far outweigh the the, uh, the risks coming with that yeah. right and, and i think that's actually a, a really good argument that supports the need for better inclusion in the industry actually because the culturalization topic of course, I mean, it is it is about being inclusive in your representation in the games themselves and doing a better job of that, especially if you're ever going to make it if you're making a game that has anything to do with the quote real world. Um, but even in fictional universes, we have to be careful because sometimes, um, well, oftentimes, actually, narrative designers and game designers will use the real world as an inspiration to create scenarios in fictional games and fictional universes, which sometimes they don't mask the inspiration enough so that you know right away like oh well that's the battle of such and such yeah. yeah i know i know what they're trying to represent here but they've just made it between like elves and orcs instead um <laughs> and 
So you have to be careful about that kind of thing. You got to be a little bit more creative in terms of, you know, how you adapt the inspiration. But I do think that, um, you know, how we go about creating these these characters and, and creating these more inclusive worlds and how we represent people in the game content, a lot of that is dependent on the talent that you have working on your team. You know, because let's face it, if you have an all white male team making games, it's like there's only so far their knowledge yeah. and experience is going to go. And I'm not necessarily knocking all white males, but I'm just saying that that's just pure reality. You know, if you have people, you know, from underrepresented groups, you have women, you've got people of color, you've got people from other cultures outside the West. If they're part of your development team, they are going to be bringing all kinds of amazing perspectives that you don't have. And they're all in all of that is going to help enrich the creative process. Yeah, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. And, um, you know, my, at my previous company, I was running as a CEO, one of the, the proudest moments that I saw before I moved on and then took on another responsibility uh, was to see that uh, we were successful in transforming the company from being, uh, I would say, purely white, um, uh, mostly guys. Um, to a, a 250, 300 people studio uh, with people from I think 30 or 30 something different country, um, different nationalities, um, and this uh, diverse team was it was just so much fun to see that, mm -hmm. to see the different cultural backgrounds, to see how it added to the creativity in the game development, how it uh, added to the understanding of different markets. Um, where we, if we needed to check for you know if something is culturally appropriate, uh, we just walked uh, down the hall, went to the the person that was actually mm -hmm. born there lived there for <laughs> most part of her life and and asked her what do you think is that something that uh that would cause problems or is that okay and 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 that was just um it was to some extent mind-blowing to see that and uh when i look back this is always like uh, the one <laughs> thing that i uh talk about uh the most because I, I really believe that makes a difference and if i look at other studios right now in the industry that um are going through a similar transition uh, that understand that uh, diverse teams actually make a difference, not only because you then have, uh, um, you, you fulfill your, uh, <laughs> the requirements mm -hmm. that everybody thinks you should, but it really helps game development. And once they understand that, then uh, it, it is, it, I think it opens their, their minds for doing more and more in that space. And that's just beautiful to see, to be honest. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I, and I think one of the things there was a great um, anecdote um, that a friend of mine, Christina Reed, she was the producer for the movie Big Hero 6. Mm -hmm. um, so she used to work at Disney. And um, so she's she has won three Oscars for her work for three projects that she worked on at Disney. So, and she gave a talk once um, at one event that I organized back when I ran the IGDA. And, um, you know, she and the talk was about inclusion. And what was really cool about her talk is that she was attributing their approach to the creative process, granted that this is for animated films, but still the principles are the same, is that for their creative process, they were committed to this idea of absolute inclusion of everybody that was, you know, essentially around the project. And so every day, you know, as, as films do, they would have their dailies where they would show the current footage and they would show, you know, the progress, um, like for the for Big Hero 6 and all that. And she also worked on two shorts, Paperman and Feast, um, which also those are the three projects for which she won Oscars. And she said the approach was the same for each one, where basically they would show the footage and they would gather every single person in the building, including the security guard, the cleaning people, the catering people, everybody would be brought into the room. Wow. And they would tell them that everyone's voice matters here. Every 
every opinion has equal value here. And so the core creative team, like the lead writer, lead animator and all that, they would kind of sit and just listen. And so they would show things and they would ask people for for feedback. And they said they got so many amazing ideas from people you would never expect. You know, like the security guy back there and he's like, hey, what if you had the, the, the dog do this instead? And they're like, why did we not think of that? That's great. That's amazing. And so, you know, and, and of course, you know, having achieved that level of, of recognition, the th- three highest awards you can possibly get in the film industry, you know, it, I thought it was really cool that she attributed that their creative process was wholly dependent on and was successful because that they opened themselves up to every voice that was in, in the room and even the voices that were not in the room. So it's like if somebody was just like a new person on their team who's only been in the company for like a week, you know, they still listen to them because they're they're a person who has this particular perspective and background and their opinion matters. And I thought that to me was one of the best definitions of inclusion I've ever heard explained, where it's it's not getting hung up on words like diversity and gender and things like that. It's just being open to everyone's input because yeah. everyone has a unique life experience. Yeah, I mean, you may, in, in that light, you mentioned um, when we talked in the past that uh, democratization of the industry is something that you that you observe right now, and that's that's pretty mm-hmm. much uh, democratization in its uh, in its full power. I mean, th- there are people; um, some of them might not even be filmmakers or in the games industry, they might not even be game developers, but they contribute to uh, making a better game um, because they they have a voice and the voice is heard. Yeah, exa- exactly. And I think that's that's what really one of the things that we're seeing as a transformation of the industry right now is, and it excites the hell out of me because what we're seeing is that with the democratization of the game development tools, you know, all the most all the engines have a free version that you can download. And I mean, there's just countless hours of education you can watch on YouTube mm-hmm. and elsewhere for free. And I, I have encountered so many people around the world who are self-taught and they're amazing creators. They're, I mean, they're, you know, they've most all of them have a particular strength, like maybe coding versus art or whatever. But they're, but what we're seeing though is that game creation has now become basically as ubiquitous as someone going to an art store and buying brushes and paint and canvas and just starting to paint a picture. Um, that doesn't mean the picture is going to be great, but what is, I mean, art is art, it's self-expression. And I think that's the important part is games, I, in my view, have now reached where, granted, there's still a technological gap, though, because if you're in a, a, a country where it's harder to get a PC or a laptop or things like that, you are excluded from the experience because you can't, you know, although you can still create games in analog form, and we've seen that be happening a lot, too. So, you know, but basically the tools are out there and people can access them. And so we're starting to see more and more people from incredibly diverse backgrounds creating games and and which is what we want, you know, so game game creation is no longer like the the realm of the privileged, you yeah. know, only for something in in like strong economic markets and for people who have education and all that kind of formal education. Um, and that's exciting because, you know, now we're starting to see all kinds of games from around the world that is like we've never seen before and they don't fit the model of the typical, you know, genres that we're used to in the, on the industry side. And I think that's super cool. And I think it doesn't even stop with game creation, also with 
publishing those games. It, since uh, with all the tools and platforms that have been, uh, you know, emerging over the last uh, decade or so, it is easier now for independent developers from all over the world to bring their creations uh, to life, to actually um, put it in front of people to to play it, be it on mobile stores or uh, you know other platforms. So I think that is that is something that even adds to that um, that they mm -hmm. can showcase the work they're doing. Uh, and of course, the visibility stays an issue. You know, obviously, if yeah. there's like millions of games, you know, it is hard <laughs> to stand out and, and really shine. But that sometimes is maybe not even the most important thing to create like a massive audience, but to have people with maybe within your region that uh, can get easy access to the games you're making. And, and I think that's that's really great. And uh, and I can definitely, um, uh, you know, see that uh, happening more and more. Yeah. And, and I and I do think that this is where the game industry as it continues to mature and again i think that this whole pandemic moment is is i'm hoping it's going to be it's a quick maturation of the industry and kind of taking on the mantle that we are um you know we are an important medium uh, to human society Absolutely. and but we, we also have to remember as creators that you know just like in every other form of creative medium um or creative media, um, not every book gets read by a lot of people. Not every film gets seen by a lot of people. Not every TV show is successful. Not every game is going to find an audience. And that doesn't mean the, the effort wasn't worth it. Um, it just means that that particular creative vision just didn't find the, you know, the broader audience that many of us hope for. And it's, it's the same aspiration of every other creative person. It's like you want your work to be as enjoyed by as many people as possible around the yeah. world. You know, and the, the ones that reach that level of success are, tend to be rare. Um, and But to find some audience, even if it's on a smaller scale, I'm hoping the game creators out there still find some level of gratification that their creative vision was acknowledged. And that it's like, we, we understand what you're trying to say. We understand what you were trying to do. Even if you didn't have like tens of millions of players and you didn't make a fortune off it, but you know, keep doing what you're doing because you're on the right path. Yeah, and oftentimes it matters that that you're happy doing it. You know, the experience that yes. you, you make yourself or with your team oftentimes matters more than uh, you know any financial level of success that you might achieve. Um, and, and when I talk to indie developers uh, all over Europe, mostly, then uh, I, I feel it. I, I feel way more passion in some of these people than when you go to big studios that have had like 20, uh, 30 successful games uh, released at some point. Um, I, I sometimes don't feel that anymore. There's there's mm -hmm. no fire burning in them anymore for that but when we talk to to indie developers even though they only had like maybe a couple hundred or a couple thousand uh, players on their game but they felt passionate about it and, and that's yes. something that really shows uh, the the power of uh, making games and uh, how important it can be to you know develop yourself as well yeah and I, and I think this is another area where there's parallels with for example you hear a lot of actors who will say that you know they they talk about the process of making the movie and then when it's over i mean a lot of actors will say like i you know if, if, if they get asked like did you see your film it's like no nah, i don't go see the films that i'm in and you're just like <laughs> why wouldn't why wouldn't you i mean why wouldn't you go see the finished product but i think for many of them it's the process it's it's the the process of creating the film and the process of acting which brings them joy and that's what makes them happy and that in the end product well obviously i think you know sure they would like it to be successful and everything but 
it in that individual moment they gave their all in that particular part for that particular job and i'm hoping that game developers also realize that you know it's it's it's, it's a trite thing to say but it's it's not the destination it's the journey and you know this is coming from someone who's 55 years old and i do have a certain level of age perspective now and i look back on all the things that i've done and yeah sure i'm i'm really happy that a lot of the games i've worked on have been really successful but that's not what the part i remember i remember all the cool people i worked with and i remember the conversations we had about all the creative decisions and and all the difficult issues we dealt with and all that stuff that's what i remember and and that's that's the that's what makes me happy and that's why i keep doing it yeah same here i've just been in the industry for 12 years i mean just it's still it's already a while but uh but uh, that, it's exactly the same sentiment that I have. When I came to the industry, I wanted to make games. I uh, ultimately wanted to make successful games, uh, like everybody does. It's, uh, you know. But then, uh, what what keeps me in the industry uh, are the amazing people that I work with every single day. Mm. Um, so it's exactly the same thing that, that you were saying. This is. It's. I don't want to say I don't care if a game is successful or not. Obviously, I do. I. It, it feels yeah. better to you know see some level of success. It feels better to see the reward for you know putting your work into something. But at the same time, it is way more rewarding to see a team come together stay together and and go through uh, all kind of different challenges together uh, and come out stronger at the other end and, and that's that's really why I'm here and that's kind of the mm-hmm. uh, the, the the level of leadership that I think uh, is, is is so much fun um, if, if you see that every single day yeah and, and and it's just that that collaborative spirit that exists in the game industry which i i think i don't think it's wholly unique to mm. us but it's something that i at least in my work experience is something that has been really different is that you know we're because we're not really competing necessarily you know that's the cool thing is that you know theoretically all of the games that get created um, can be successful to a certain degree, which is means finding the right audience. Um, you know, but it's, is I, every time I go to a developer meetup or I meet, you know, developers in different parts of the world or whatever, there always seems to be a certain level of collaborative spirit amongst them. You know, it's very rare to come across against like, well, they're in fierce competition with each other. It's like, why? I mean, they're not really. And and so that kind of, especially among indie developers, because they're all kind of in that same space where they're trying to pursue their, their heart's vision, you know, making this really cool game that they thought about, um, and you know being able to share with each other saying hey i've got code that can help you out with that problem or i've got i know somebody who can fix that for you and things like that and i think is awesome you know I, I love seeing that and and um there's other industries of which i've been associated with where you don't hear that as much it's like we well, you know you can't talk to them because they're competitors so don't go talk to them yeah. it's just like it's, yeah, it's ridiculous on. i mean and that's why i love our industry so much because we are sharing a lot of info we are uh, we're like you said we're collaborating a lot um there's so many more um uh collaboration projects co-development projects going on by people who just believe in in a similar vision and want to do something together and don't necessarily think of the the competition first and, and that's what i what i like because in the end like you said there's enough room for all of us in the games industry in general is not like yep. super large i mean if you compare it to other uh, major industries no, uh, we're still like a small family business if you will so mm-hmm. um and, and that's why i think this is the only way to go you know support each other and uh and then come up with better games yeah exactly so 
We've tiptoed around the topic of diversity and inclusion a bit uh, throughout the <laughs> entire uh, recording yeah. so far. So maybe let's dive a little deeper in, into that topic. Obviously, there's a lot mm -hmm. going on in the industry right now uh, in that light, um, and we, we can't possibly cover it all. But obviously, I would be interested in, in your take on things. Um, my, my leading question would be, what do we all need to learn? Where are we right now? And, and what do we have to do to... Um, you know, lead this industry to a better future in terms of uh, more diversity, being more inclusive, and also hopefully at some point get rid of the toxic behavior that we see uh, in, in parts of industry. Yeah, it's it's um, it's a challenge. I mean, we, <laughs> to put it mildly, um, <laughs> you know, we there's a lot of behaviors in this industry that we inherited from the general tech sector. Um, you know, and I, I'm not gonna. I'm going to try not to focus exclusively on the sexism and the gender-based problems that we have in this industry, because it's not just that. Um, that tends to get a lot of the highlight, and for good reason, because this industry is roughly only about 20% women on a global basis. So it's, you know, women are vastly outnumbered in this industry. Um, and there, again, there's historical reasons for that. And there's also social reasons for that, you know, why, you know, in different markets where women are not encouraged to pursue engineering careers or technical careers, that there's a cultural factor behind that too. Um, all of that aside, the reality is that where, where are we now? What are we facing at the moment? Um, I have to say that, you know, I thought that when the whole misogynist campaign by Gamergate was going on five years ago, that the industry was going to have a wake up call. And sadly, it didn't. Um, a lot of the industry turned a blind eye because they didn't really understand it. They didn't take the time to understand it. I know when I was running the IGDA at the time, I was talking to CEOs at different companies, basically imploring them to say something, do something. It's like, do you have any idea what's going on out there? And I think there was kind of a willful ignorance, as I would call it, about what was happening. And there were rare exceptions, though, like Mike Morheim at Blizzard. You know, he spoke out about it at BlizzCon in 2014. And he, I think that was fantastic. And I thanked him to his face for doing so, um, because that was a really important moment. But it's sad that a lot of other uh, leaders in the industry did not say anything. They stayed silent. You know, but then fast forward a few years and we had the Me Too movement in Hollywood, which exploded. And then even when it exploded in Hollywood, it didn't really happen very, it wasn't very loud in the game industry. And so, you know, we were kind of, a lot of us were kind of wondering, well, what, what about us? You know, it's like, you know, we're, we have a lot of issues here too. Um, but of course, you know, if you've got big movie stars calling out Harvey Weinstein and stuff like that, obviously that's going to get the news cycles far more than games will. Um, but then, of course, over the last, you know, several about the last six months or so, we've had a, a wave of Me Too happening in the industry as well. And I think it's been getting more traction as, as we've seen in some companies that have done some significant shakeups in the recent weeks. Um, you know, this is something that um, I, I'm hoping the industry is finally going to take seriously. And they're going to understand that toxic environments in the workplace let's let's set aside toxic environments on the gaming side on the consumer side that's another issue <laughs> but on the industry side and on the workplace side i'm hoping that this is the moment where a lot of companies will finally understand that you have to address this you cannot any longer you know just assume it's going to go away and a lot of this you know 
frankly comes back to my my background doing culture in culturalization this is a culture issue this is companies whose culture uh, either you know allows this to happen and, and just kind of tacitly or, or implicitly allows it to happen without consequence or it's a company culture in which this is addressed directly and and the leadership in the company says that we will not tolerate this and by not tolerating we mean we're not going to just tell this person no don't do that anymore we're actually going to fire your ass because you violated our company's code of conduct, which every company should have, and they should post that code of conduct, and they should make clear. And again, I'm kind of focusing a little bit on the gender aspect of it, but this applies to anything. It applies to ageism, which is also a huge rampant problem in this industry, where it's very difficult for people in their 40s and 50s to get jobs, even though they've got tremendous amount of experience and perspective. But because it's tech tends to be a youth-oriented culture, it's really hard for people of age and experience to find those jobs because they are discriminated against regularly. Um, people of color and people from other cultures, um, you know, it, I can go on and on, but it really comes down to what kind of culture do you want your company to have and especially you know if, if it comes to light which in today's world with the community aspect that we talked about previously it will come to light eventually so it's not like you're gonna just bury this because that doesn't really happen anymore i don't think you can get away with that anymore um so basically i'm hoping that Mo that every company in this industry right now, whether it's a small indie studio or a large AAA company, I'm really hoping they're looking themselves in the mirror and saying, who are we? You know, what are our values? What are we going to stand for? And are we going to let people who work in our company endure that kind of abuse or, or harassment or whatever it might be? Um, and I'm really hoping they're ha they're thinking that through and talking about it right now. Yeah, I think it's an absolutely necessary step for um, for every company in the games, and not only in the games industry in general, for every company to uh, you know think about uh, their values and and obviously uh, to say clearly that they are not tolerating behavior like this. Um, if we if we talk to uh, some of the the companies in the industry, then a lot of them would actually say that this is this is how our culture should be like. This is what we want. We don't want to be discriminating against people. We don't want uh, toxic behavior in, in our environment. Uh, but then sometimes, you know, companies grow. They have their certain subcultures within mm -hmm. within companies. So from your point of view, what can you do as senior leadership of a company who's ultimately responsible for this um, to discover it and uh, and set up structures or, or processes to help you with that um you know believing in people for, for a moment and saying that they really yeah. don't want to see this behavior but it still happens it's maybe covered up by by you know some people in, in some on some management levels what can you do um what are your thoughts on that well i think first of all i mean it has to you know you have to have leadership who is willing to address the issue and not be afraid of it and i know it's difficult it's it's a challenging thing to address um, and it's uncomfortable to have these conversations. And um, as we've seen in some companies recently, there seemed to be something of a, for lack of a better term, sort of a bro culture mm. in which we, you know, guys are kind of covering each other's backs. And even if it's not consciously covering, it's implicitly covering. Cause it's like, well, you know, I know him, you know, I know this guy, he wouldn't do that. Or, you know, I'm sure he didn't mean it 
or something like that. It's just kind of that brush off, like, you know, well, he's a good developer, though, or he's a good creative person or whatever that, you know, oftentimes we come back to these excuses. It's always the but, 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 you know, but he can do this or or he's responsible for this. It's like, you know, when we when we hold their contribution there, even if the contribution has been positive, so maybe they have contributed a lot to the environment and to the success of the games that should not be held over the fact of what they did. You yeah. know, it can't be an excuse for their behavior. Their behavior has to be fundamental to, to understanding what their motivations are and why, why is this happening? And, so it takes leadership who's going to be engaged. They can't just assume, well, I put this person in charge and I trust them because I've known them for 10 years. And so I put them in this position and now I'm hearing some like random complaints about them. Well, I don't believe those because, you know, that I, I know this person. It's like, well, do you really? Do you really do any of us really know any of us? <laughs> you know, it's like we, we are human beings. Every human being has a side of them that most people probably don't know, you know, and so and there's sides of ourselves that we don't even know. You know, that's just the nature of being a human being. Um, and so I think leadership has to be super engaged. They've got to make this a priority. They can't brush this off. If they really want their culture to be maintained and to be productive and creative and successful, they have to keep a, a, a handle on this, which means they can't just address it like once a year during a performance review. It's something that they need to be mindful of, you know, all the time as part of the overall maintenance of the company's culture. The other thing that has to happen is they must have in place a very clear accountability protocol so there needs to be a code of conduct that everybody agrees to and signs when they are an employee and if they violate that code of conduct there needs to be very clear um, uh, accountability and consequences so this is exactly what's going to happen to you you know first offense second offense what and of course it depends on what they did right. um, you know if they did some kind of harassment or something worse then you know you're talking about criminal investigation which is you know basically grounds for firing you're out and now you can deal with the police and the detectives and everything else um you know but there has to be a willingness to not tolerate it and not make excuses about it and um and a lot of that again just comes from the top it comes from the top culture but the other part of it that's super important is there must be a mechanism by which people can complain without consequence. They have to be able to report behavior and not be judged, not be demoted, not be reassigned to a different position, which I hear these stories all the time, especially from women where they went to a manager, they reported behavior, and then they got pulled off a project, they didn't get a promotion, they had their salary cut, whatever the thing might be, but they were basically, it was punitive measures were taken against the person who reported the behavior and so i'm really glad that you know now that we have like the games and online harassment hotline that just launched a couple of weeks ago we finally have a resource where people on both the industry side and on the consumer side can actually call a hotline and get some help and, and talk to somebody about these issues and i think that's something that even individual companies um that's something that they need to have in place and i think a lot of the bigger companies you know they they certainly do have something like that in place but um i don't think it doesn't take being a huge AAA company or being a Microsoft or Sony to have that. I mean, I think the culture, especially if you're an indie developer who's starting a new company, you need to set that tone right from the start. 
it's the best time to do it. It's like if you're if you have a team of like 10 people who are creating a game together, the people leading that company or leading that group, they have to set the tone from the start, because if your company grows and as it continues to be successful, you want to, that culture to carry over. You don't want to lose that. Yeah. Um, and starting it that early is is going to be beneficial. Now you've got to have that nucleus in the beginning and that uh, yes. ultimately creates like kind of a ripple effect into, you know, the, the bigger organization once you grow. But I, I'm curious, I mean, from your conversations with developers that, that you're having, um, do you see a pattern that um, the behavior we're talking about, that the toxic behavior, sexism is occurring more in bigger studios or is it pretty much across the board? I, I think it's across the board. I mean, it's it, again, it's just like um, I don't want to sound too much like a social scientist, but I am. So, <laughs> um, it, it is it's human behavior. I mean, it happens all all over the place. Um, you know, one of the one of the problems that we see, I think, what tends to happen in bigger studios is because as you grow and you become bigger studios, the talent pool that you're bringing in, you know, we tend to see people hiring people who are like themselves. So typically, if you have a company started by like white guys for example they tend to hire people like themselves or they or they'll say that that's the only talent we can find in which case my response is you're not trying hard enough because there is talent out there um now whether or not there's talent local to you you know in your city or elsewhere i know the talent is there too but you got to work harder to find it um but you know that that's a whole nother issue about acquisition of of diverse talent but um I do think that it's really important that you have to set that tone early. Um, and um, yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> I lost your question. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it was about the big studios, whether, uh, you know, you see it more in big studios, but you, you answered it and said, like, you see it everywhere. And obviously there's a tendency yes. for bigger studios to maybe, uh, you know, see more of it because it's obviously it's just yes. also more people, you know, and, uh, and uh, if you don't... Uh, you know the focus on the culture building early on then you might end up in a situation where it kind of uh is a little bit out of control you know at some right. point exactly yeah. are there uh, so you talked about the kind of the, the whistleblowing uh, thing a little bit uh, that it's important thing within the mm -hmm. company to have an anonymous way of reporting this um i, I can for example say that uh you know uh within the embracer group that i'm part of uh we've just recently introduced this i think like about two weeks ago or so we mm. officially launched this that people can now also anonymously report if they see behavior um, uh, that uh, is inappropriate uh, and i really think it's it's the right way to do um could you talk a little more about the hotline you mentioned uh is that a U.S. only um, uh, organization right now, or and how does that, who's who's behind that? I'm just curious. Yeah, it was actually an effort that Anita Sarkeesian started um, along with a group of other folks, and um, it, it's been in the works for a very long time, actually. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it finally got the momentum and got started a couple weeks ago. There's a big announcement, but the games games and online harassment hotline is what it's called, and um, and so it currently is there. There's the hotline hours are currently more U.S. based at the moment um so yeah it is it's a u.s effort that got started here um there's a lot of hope especially with with greater support that this can expand um you know to a, to a much larger scale um but of course the other the other thing that's complicated is that you know i i think having the hotline resource is absolutely vital and i think anybody should be encouraged 
to call this particular hotline because it's one that exists right now and I know they will do the due diligence to follow up. Um, but of course, the other challenge we have is that you have different legal regimes across all these different countries. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, so I think you're, you're going to have to have a combination of, I think, reaching out to this particular hotline is really useful and very important, especially if you want to report something. Um, but then I think you also need to, if you're not based in the United States, I think it would help to reach out to whatever kind of local resource that you have as well. Um, hopefully there is one of some kind, whether it's at your company or whether or not there is some kind of, you know, uh, resource legally or you know, related to police or something. Yeah, and I hope that given the the current um, you know state of the industry and all the things that we see uh, happening, that more and more um, uh, organizations around the world are creating something similar within our industry and beyond, uh, so that people get the help they they would need and uh, and feel safe. You know, because uh, oftentimes it's about uh, you know feeling very vulnerable in those moments uh, mm. for the reasons you said before. You know, um, probably getting demoted and uh, you know taking off a project that you care so much about, and if you can take away that fear. Of uh, of being punished for something you do, I think that's a very important right. step uh, toward uh, understanding more of what's actually happening out there. I I agree, and, and to be honest, I mean, I think for companies that don't do something like this, and especially to have an anonymous whistleblower, not just for harassment, but also for you know work issue, other work yeah. issues too. Like you know, if you don't want to be crunching for fourteen hours a day and you're afraid to complain to your manager, but you need to say something. I mean, there needs to be uh, a mechanism through which employees can safely provide feedback to management and and, uh, and not be judged or, or punished for it. And frankly, when I see companies that don't do this, what it tells, it tells me a lot about their leadership. And what it tells me is that the leadership is weak and that the leadership is afraid of criticism and that the leadership is basically insecure in their ability to lead because a true leader, in my view, leaders are the, the best leaders I've ever known are servants. They're not taskmasters and they don't crack a whip. They are there to help, you know, basically support the people who report yeah. to them. You know, they are shepherds. Um, and they are servants. They're not, you know, they're not pharaohs. <laughs> no, you're, so, you're there for your people. I mean, that's that's what you hire for. It doesn't matter if you're like a, a manager of a small team or you're a CEO of like a, a global company. I think you're always there to serve the people that you have on your team and make sure that you remove obstacles out of their way. And this is one major obstacle, I think, that uh, is ruining um, uh, even, even big corporations if you don't uh, tackle it the right way. So I couldn't agree with you more. It's, it's really important. So yeah. for the for the final uh, uh, question that I have for you, I want to um, uh, just take a quick look at um, the uh, the politics side of things. You you mentioned um, before there's like obviously different regimes around the world, um, uh, legal regimes uh, when we talk about um, how to handle those issues of mm. toxic behavior and, and, and sexism potentially. But there's also like uh, issues in, uh, in 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 geopolitics if you look at uh, what's going on in the world and the games industry sometimes. Um, kind of gets in touch with with that. So uh, I just I was just wondering what you thought about uh, how active uh, a role the games industry should take in those in those matters uh, when uh, uh, certain beliefs and certain regimes around the world potentially clash with our belief as an industry that we should have a diverse culture that people should be able to speak uh, up mm-hmm. and, and and so uh, what are your thoughts uh, in that area? 
Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of thoughts on that. I mean, that does directly relate to my culturalization work, but it is it is a, a broader issue as well. And I mean, it's part of the image of the industry, and it's part of the maturity of the industry on whether or not you know do we take political stands do we make political statements mm. and all of that kind of stuff is something i think comes back to a creative decision by every single developer and every company um and so oftentimes when i'm doing my culturalization work i have high level discussions with develop with the developers especially with the leadership of the company about what their values are and and what their moral and ethical structure is and uh, you can imagine that becomes an uncomfortable uncomfortable conversation because yeah. they're like why we why are we talking about this it's like uh, let me explain why i'm talking about this because when you are going to make a game let's say it's a game about the real world or let or i mean real world history or something um let's say for example you want to make a game that takes place in the real world but in the future and you want to show uh, Taiwan as an independent country, like fully fledged independent country. You make that game and that's fine. It's science fiction to take place in the future. So what? Well, if you do that, your game will be instantly banned in China because they will not accept the even the fictional vision of an independent yeah. Taiwan. Um, and so let's say if that's your scenario, what are you going to do about it? Now, you know, if you keep, if you stick with your creative vision in that particular example, you will not be selling the game in China. And the Chinese government, like many governments around the world, will probably remember that you did this. So the next time, the next game you come out with, they will probably not allow your game to sell in China. So you will basically instantly make China inaccessible to you as a game developer. And it is the largest gaming market in the world. So are you going to make that change or are you not gonna make that change? And there is no right answer to this. I mean, the, the right answer is what do you want to do as a creative person? You know, do you want to stick with your creative vision or do you want to change it for the sake of a particular government? Because that government tends to be very heavy handed in their practices and very forceful in, in, in frankly, in their political hegemony that they're trying to create on a global scale. Um, and I'm not saying other countries don't do that. I'm sitting here in the United States. We're also guilty of creating, you know, hegemonies and all kinds of other problems. I have no idea As, what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, and we can go down the list. You can talk yeah. about, you know, the UK and France and all these other yeah. colonial powers of the past. But um, but that that's a decision you have to make. You know, and, and so, you know, that, that affects your core creative vision. It affects your business model. It affects your future revenue. It affects your ability to release future games. And so it's a really critical decision to make. And yet so many developers I, I talk with and, and consult with, it's not a conversation they're willing to have, or it's not, they, oftentimes it doesn't even cross their mind that it's a conversation they need to even think about. Um, you know, there was a time back when I was at Microsoft because I had access to Bill Gates, because the issues I dealt with were really high level and potentially impactful. Uh, at one point I, I asked him, who's the moral compass of Microsoft? Because I need to know, you know, where the company is going to draw the line on what it will or will not change. And his answer to me was, he said, that's your job. <laughs> and I was like, I don't think I get paid enough to be the moral compass at Microsoft. But what he meant was essentially that if someone like me, who's lower down the, the chain, if I make a mistake, I'm easy to eject out the airlock and just say, well, that that, per that person made a mistake and we got rid of her. Um, 
where if, if someone in leadership like Bill Gates, if, if, if it was his decision, which frankly, I think it should be because at the time he was the head of the company. But, um, you know, if he made that decision, then what happens? The stock go drops by 50% and it's like all this disaster and mayhem with the company. And so they can't afford that kind of damage. So, um, but the point is, is that it's a conversation you have to make and, and oftentimes you have to make it in the moment. But I, I do hope that a lot of people who are out there as creators at least have it in the back of their mind that it's something they need to think about. Um, you know, if we if we talk about not just on the game creation side, but also in just the general like community side of things, you look at what happened with Blizzard with their Hearthstone tournament in Taiwan. You know where they had their the winner of the of the tournament was was um you know messaging about pro hong kong messages during the all the hong kong protests that were happening last year and what was blizzard's knee-jerk reaction they shut them down they took away the prize money and they denied the victory you know because this person was exercising their free speech um in yeah. support of hong kong and you know and, and it's in taiwan so it's just like what are you worried about well we, of course we know what they're worried about you know they're worried about china's reaction right across the taiwan strait and because Blizzard is, you know, Blizzard Activision is owned in part by Tencent, a small part, but a, you know, a significant part. Um, you know, Blizzard kept saying that this has nothing to do with China. That's utter bullshit. Of course it yeah. did. It had everything to do with China. You know, the, what what the problem was is that this is a, this was a great example of a company being completely caught off guard. They were not prepared for what to do because you could see what happened. If you read the stories and follow the timeline, at first they just outright block this person, take away the prize, shut the, down their free speech, and then they slowly walk that back. They give the prize back. You know, they make some, you know, tepid apology and things like that. But um, what it shows, I mean, all of that, what happened in that scenario showed me that this is a company that was completely unprepared for dealing with this. And as, 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 you know, a medium that is out there on the global stage where this could happen, even though that comment that the person made had nothing to do with the game itself. There was nothing in that game that related to that issue, but it's the fact that that was the game being played. They were the ones who made the game and they, you know, the winner, you know, just happened to say something. All of that kind of comes together. And my point being is that you have to be prepared for this kind of stuff. You have to think through, you know, where are you willing to draw the line or where, where are you willing to make a change? Um, and you preferably are not going to have to make that in the moment when you're panicking and everyone is looking at you for a response and time is ticking. You want to be prepared for that much earlier. Kate. Thank you so much uh, for all the insights uh, that you provided into uh, diverse topics, diversity and inclusion, culturalization, uh, your history and all the insights you had. Uh, it was a pleasure uh, having this recording with you. We could go on for hours, I think, <laughs> and talk about all those issues. And I hope yes. we get the chance to do a follow-up at some point. Uh, but for now, I, I want to say thank you again. I hope it is as much fun for all the listeners out there as it was for me recording this episode with you. Uh, and uh, thank you again. It was wonderful. Thank you so much. It was great to be here. Thank you for listening to a DevCom podcast produced by Sven Fossing. Executive producer, Stefan Reichart. Music by WeLoveIndies.com. Supported by Bayer Dynamic. High quality headphones, microphones, and conference systems for professional musicians and gamers. Made in Germany.